This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Because it's only when we have that accurate picture of what existence is like for the person who is dependent on a substance that we can begin to determine what kinds of interventions would be appropriate. In this second episode on addiction and medically supervised injection rooms, we go to Melbourne, Australia and speak to healthcare leaders there on their experience with these programs. Again, these programs aim to respond to the addiction health issues of those who are dependent on injection drugs and respond to the broader public health impact of addiction on a community, such as a high amount of drug overdose or the transmission of infectious disease through the sharing of infected needles. Our two guests today are Dr. Yvonne Benomo, Director of the Department of Addiction Medicine at St. Vincent Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and Associate Professor at the Department of Medicine, University of Melbourne. Dan Fleming is Group Manager of Ethics and Formation at St. Vincent's Health Australia, also Fellow in the Law, Health, and Justice Research Center in the University of Technology, Sydney, and the Adjunct Lecturer at the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Dr. Yvonne Bonomo, where did the idea come from to start a medically supervised injection site in your area? We had been thinking about vulnerable populations with addictions as a community in the state of Victoria for some time, and it, it was noted that there was a group that seemed to be missing out because of the high threshold to get into treatment services. But really the conversation suddenly gained a lot more impetus when the number of overdose deaths started to rise exponentially. So it was becoming almost like an epidemic of uh, people who were dying in alleyways, in car parks, having injected, and that really sparked a community concern and pressure to do something more than what was available and That's how the discussion around the injecting room for our state of Victoria came about. Did you have other similar programs to learn from regarding their approach and impact? We had local experience, if you like, with the first injecting room being set up in Sydney. Um, And so we were able to talk with our colleagues there about the benefits of it. But also there, is, there are quite a number of injecting centres around the world. There's around 100 in around 10 countries. And looking at the, the research evidence from those centres, it is clear that it, these, this approach reduces overdose deaths. It tends to decrease the use of substances, so both in terms of frequency of use and amount. It reduces the the likelihood of infections, particularly blood-borne viruses such as hepatitis C and HIV. It helps move people towards uh, other health care and it decreases the public injecting behaviour and public disturbance. So there's quite a clear evidence base now that tells us that this is an option 
that has many benefits for the broader community, let alone the individual whom we'd like to help uh, move towards a, a point of better health and well-being. Yvonne, how did you work to build trust with a patient community who may not always have felt welcomed at traditional healthcare sites? In our work in addiction, there are lots of things that we can offer people, but we need to be able to encounter them. And so we were very aware that without a facility such as the medically supervised injecting room, there was a group of very vulnerable people who might turn up in the emergency department but not wait long enough to be seen or for us to go and talk with them and start a conversation. They were really uh, in the community um, but not accessing the services that could help them both in terms of their health but also social services in terms of a roof over their head and food um, on a regular basis and clean clothes and that sort of thing. So for us, uh, we have always been concerned that there is is that subgroup of very vulnerable people that need help, that can benefit from help, but we we just couldn't reach them because they weren't quite... Uh, entering our domain. And so that required thinking outside the box really and saying, okay, what else can we do to improve access to treatment? And that's the context in which the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre emerged. Could you walk us through the biology of addiction and its impact on an individual's ability to make a choice? So it's very important to discern between substance use versus substance addiction. With substance use, that is a voluntary preventable behaviour. So, for example, you and I might choose to drink alcohol or choose not to. We might choose to use cannabis or we might choose not to, notwithstanding the legal aspect of it. Addiction is something quite different to that. It's not just a lot of substance use. It is a compulsive behaviour that occurs even though the person knows it's doing them harm and probably doing harm to those around them. And addiction is a manifestation of a change in the circuitry of the brain, particularly the reward pathway. And what that means is that it impairs one's free will. It doesn't mean that they're zombies and they cannot overcome that uh, circuitry, but it does mean that it is incredibly difficult and most people need help to be able to override that circuitry and make more positive decisions in terms of their health care and their well-being. And with addiction treatment, it's not just about stopping the substance use. Addiction treatment is about bringing people to a place where they can flourish. So creating the conditions that they can feel connected, feel hopeful, have a clear sense of their identity, have meaning in their life, and above all, have agency, feel empowered so that the addiction is not controlling them, they are controlling it. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's very important that we remember and understand that when the person is standing before us with an addiction, that we look around that addiction and see the person behind the addiction and understand that there have been a number of steps, a number of events that have occurred in their life 
that has led them down this pathway and that it is possible to move to a place where one can flourish, but it will take time and it will take effort. Practically, what would the protocol of a medically supervised injection room look like? Some practical aspects of the medically supervised injecting room are that staff don't provide the drugs, they don't assist with the injecting, they are there to supervise and advise on how to inject more safely to avoid avoid bloodborne virus infection or other complications. Uh, people aren't able to deal the drugs at the room. People who are accessing the injecting room are not able to inject other people uh, and they don't come in as pairs, they come in as individuals and they are not able to deal drugs on the site. So it's quite important that there are boundaries that are set and by and large people are very happy to abide by those boundaries and don't really challenge them. Dan Fleming, how did you and your colleagues discern your way through some of the ethical questions arising here? Kevin, it was a remarkable experience discerning our way through the questions that Yvonne has put on the table for us today, which relate to how do we respond to the dignity of these precious people who are caught in the grip of a substance addiction and who, as one of our key leaders in St Vincent's said at one of our first gatherings to think through this, we often meet too late. So we often meet in the emergency department or we often hear about uh, through other connections that these people have tragically died from an overdose or from some other comorbidity that's gone along with their substance use. So in this context, it's, it's probably important just to say something briefly about the history and the charism of St. Vincent's as an organisation uh, because that gives um, a sense of, of why it is that this particular group was of special concern to us and to our people. So St. Vincent's was established by the Sisters of Charity who came to Australia in 1838. And their charism is a charism of seeking out the poor and vulnerable wherever they are and providing whatever services they need in order to be restored to a, a kind of flourishing that really reflects the dignity that they have, as Mary Aiken had said, who's the founder of the Sisters of Charity, as God's own nobility. They established some of the um, first hospitals dedicated for the poor in Australia, the first ever dedicated end-of-life care service in Australia. They're on the front line in the HIV-AIDS crisis up in our hospital in Sydney. And so there's this ongoing sense of a charism that brings itself to bear in the lives of precious people who otherwise wouldn't be cared for. And so as we as a service were encountering um, this complex set of questions around these precious people who are suffering from an addiction in our own communities, that was the thrust that we brought to bear on all of our decision-making. And we brought everyone we needed to, from clinicians to ethicists to executives to stakeholders, and people who are suffering from addictions in different contexts around the table to try and learn what might be possible so that we can build a bridge to this community who, as I mentioned before, 
we're currently meeting too late. Dan, what is your response to people saying you are enabling drug use? What were the ways this was reviewed ethically? Kevin, these were the questions that were at the heart of all of our discussion because as a group we wanted to act with integrity, we wanted to act within our ethical tradition and we wanted to apply our principles accurately to this issue to respond to these people's dignity. So we had to grapple with questions like that because if we as a service were simply willing to partner with or set up something that was just enabling well, then that wouldn't be something that we'd consider appropriate within our ethical framework. And in this context, I'd like to bounce back to what Yvonne was speaking about before in terms of the difference between substance use and substance addiction, because it's only when we have that accurate picture of what existence is like for the person who is dependent on a substance that we can begin to determine what kinds of interventions would be appropriate. And if I may, Kevin, I've just got a a brief little story to tell, which was one of the first times I got real insight into what life might be like for this, this community. It happened some years ago now when I was visiting Brazil and I was giving a presentation over there at a moral education conference and um, a Salesian priest who's a theological ethicist and colleague of mine very kindly gave me some accommodation in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And as we were driving there from the airport, he said, now, Dan, one thing I want you to know is that just across the road from where we'll be living is a place that they call Crackalandia. And I kind of said, oh, okay, so, so what's all that about? And he said, well, it's a community that has grown up around an addiction to crack cocaine And what had happened was a number of buildings had been um, evicted and so on, and there are a number of vacant spaces, and people who were acutely addicted to crack cocaine ended up gathering around and living in this community. And I'll just read you something very brief from an article in The Guardian um, by Sam Cowie, which describes what Crackalandia looked like. So I was staying just across the road from this place. He says this, Here hundreds of people sit in the middle of the street wrapped in blankets and smoke crack openly. Others wandered, wander wild-eyed, looking for tin cans and other recyclables to sell. Most are skinny and gaunt, faces contorted from years of drug abuse. There's garbage everywhere and a thick smell of body odour. Police patrol the perimeter just metres away. They keep an eye on things but don't intervene with the drug-taking or dealing. Instead, they mostly watch for other crimes such as robbery, municipal offices, and NGO workers hover nearby. Even more surprisingly, on weekdays, there are workers with backpacks and suited office types who scurry past on the opposite side of the street, and that's where I was staying. Despite being in the scene of intense urban degradation, Crackland, in fact, sits on prime real estate. And the article goes on a bit after that. Now, I can remember standing on that corner and gazing into um, Crackalandia and having this real, really acute sense of the lack of freedom that existed for the people who were caught up there. And I heard a lot of really difficult stories about who's ended up there and why. And one of the things my Salesian friend said to me is, Dan, we've tried everything to build a bridge into this community and respond to them. And none of our normal methods work. None of our normal methods work. 
there's they, they had no way they they had no imagination even for thinking about how do we even begin here and whilst our situation in melbourne and also in sydney um is is not as extreme as that i think it presents us with the right question to start with ethically speaking how do we begin here because as you say kevin one of one um, assumption might be made that well, what, what you're doing here is simply enabling or even encouraging drug use. But when you look into somewhere like Crackerlandia or when you try and respond to the dignity of the cohort who Yvonne has been speaking about, enabling is not the question because these people are going to do this anyway. They've, I mean, the, the brain chemistry is such that they experience themselves as having no other choice. So the question is not one of enablement, but the question of encouraging whatever possibilities are available to that person at that time, which from the sober person's perspective might seem really tiny, such as choosing a clean needle over a reused dirty one, such as choosing to go into a private environment to take drugs, which is medically supervised, as against choosing to do this on the street. Now, these choices might seem to you and I like, oh, gosh, that's an obvious choice, isn't it? But the way in which we learnt from Yvonne and her colleagues about what experience is like for these people and for the people themselves, these are the huge moral leaps that need to be cultivated first as a condition of possibility for further recovery, rehabilitation and so on to occur and for the caring of all of those other comorbidities that are often wrapped around a person and often also the very reason for their addiction in the first place, which, as we know, can, can relate to previous trauma and so on too. Yvonne, do you have an example of a patient who has had a positive outcome because of your services? There are plenty of stories of people who have, through the use of the injecting room, moved to better uh, positions in, in terms of their health and well-being. Uh, one that comes to mind was a young girl who was homeless, uh, injecting drugs daily, and started to use the injecting room and through engagement with the staff at the injecting room, realise that it is possible to make different decisions and that not all doors were shut in terms of uh, improving one's health and well-being. And slowly, slowly with steps towards healthcare in terms of accessing not just addiction treatment but general health interventions as well as finding more stable accommodation, she eventually was able to start to engage in education and today is completing her nursing degree. And she has said to the uh, members of the injecting room, had I not accessed the room, I would never have thought it possible to consider alternatives to the way I was living, let alone to get education and engage in work. So that's a really good news story, but I don't want to leave people with the impression that that happens for everybody because 
Uh, as Dan mentioned, for some people, it's the small steps that are very meaningful. The choice between using a clean needle versus a reused needle. Yvonne, what are the scope of services that an individual could access at your site? So it was very important to us that this injecting room not merely be a place where you shoot up and that's it. It was very important that we provide integration with health and social services. So there is access to, uh, as you've mentioned, methadone or buprenorphine treatment, to counselling, other health care, so treatment for hepatitis C, uh, dental care, which is very important because many of these people have uh, a lot of dental complications as a result of the way they're living, but also social services, so uh, homeless services, helping them to find uh, somewhere to live, access to food uh, and other social services. So it's quite integrated. We work closely. The hospital works closely with the injecting room. So if they do need to have emergency care, say, or an infected injecting site or some other uh, health problem, we, we try to make the transition from the injecting room to our hospital as smooth as possible and as welcoming as possible so that they don't get frightened off and leave before we've had a chance to help them get that treatment. So it's very much an integrated model with health and social services. Dan, what is the better ethical framework to describe what is occurring here? So what Yvonne has described there is what, what I would frame as a, a comprehensive service in which the medically supervised injecting room is a discrete component of a broader attempt to build a bridge with this community. So having dealt with the question of whether this is merely enabling, I also think we need to deal with the question of whether this is merely harm reduction or, and there have been some um, some critiques of medically supervised injecting room models, that they are simply an effort at reducing public, diserv- uh, sorry, uh, public disturbance and reducing uh, costs to government and so on through overdose deaths and so on. Now, some models may well have that as their primary purpose, but that's certainly not a model that we would see as adequately serving the dignity of these people with whom we would otherwise have no relationship. In the context of harm reduction, what Yvonne has explained to us is something that is far more comprehensive than harm reduction. So the framing of a harm reduction attempt uh, intervention would be something like, you're going to do this anyway, and so if you're going to do this, please also do it in this way so that you reduce harm to yourself and to others. And that's certainly part of this model but it doesn't exhaust its comprehensiveness. Because even if we did that alone, I don't think we would be adequately responding to the dignity of these people. Now, in this context, I think the way to frame this as an ethical question is through the category that um, became well-known in Catholic theological ethics in John Paul II and has recently um, been brought to light again through Pope Francis, which is this idea of gradualism in the moral life, which is in simple terms a reflection on the fact that we as all humans, as moral subjects, 
grow gradually towards the fulfillment of the moral good. And depending on who we are, depending on our own capacities for freedom, depending on our own moral formation and so on, may more or less achieve an embodiment of what we'd call in our ethical tradition the objective good. This in no way relativizes the moral norms that we have around, for example, using substances on ourselves that could be particularly harmful, that could spiral us into addiction and so on. Not in any sense. But what it asks is, for this person, in this moment in time, what is the most moral growth that we can encourage and support in them? And as we mentioned before, that initial first step tiny as it may seem to the person who's been sober for their whole life, um, could be as simple as choosing a clean needle over a dirty one. But here's hoping, and this is the design of the service itself, that in making that step in the context of a medically supervised injecting room, a team is there to wrap around that person and build a relationship with them and provide other services to them, which generate a condition of possibility for future growth towards the good. Dan, it's clear this work has impacted you. What has been your key takeaway or aha moment? I think one of the most important realizations for me was that sense of attempting to build a bridge and what we would call in other contexts a therapeutic relationship with a community who, by definition, we encounter too late. That was one of the biggest learnings for me, which then I think opened up our moral imaginations to thinking about, okay, given that that's the context, what might we need to do that in any other context we wouldn't even consider, but in this context we're impelled towards or uh, asked to stop on the side of the road of a need which really isn't being addressed in, in any other way. And in that context, I also think that uh, Pope Francis's work in this area and, and his own imagination around what the church is and the famous analogy of the uh, field hospital in the middle of the battle in which he invites the church to do what good she can and the ministries of the church to do what good they can out in the midst of the messiness of the world, even if in the process their shoes get muddied in the soil of the streets. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Yeah.